Welcome to another episode of Spaghettification. This episode is the first of many special guest episodes coming up throughout Season 1 of Spaghettification. But before we begin this episode, we would like to say that in the spirit of reconciliation, that we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to the land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. We'd also like to give a shout out to our very first Patreon supporter, Mr. Steve Polson. Uh, thank you, Steve, for your support. It means a lot to us as we begin this journey into the world of podcasting. If anyone else out there would like to support Spaghettification, please head to our website at www.spaghettification.com.au and follow the links to our Patreon page. We're lucky to have gravitational astrophysicist Paul Lasky here with us today as our very first guest of the Spaghettification podcast. I met Paul quite some time ago when he was doing a postdoc at the University of Melbourne and can confirm that he's an all-round cracker of a bloke. Utterly hilarious and down-to-earth, he has had his fingers in a number of research pies, but is particularly drawn to gravitational wave astrophysics, which we are hopefully going to unpack for you today. Paul, are you feeling exceptionally honoured being our very first guest? You've sprung this on me that I'm your first guest, and I am both uh, honoured and scared and nervous and all of, I have a rush of emotions at the moment. That's fantastic. That's what we're hoping for. (laughs) (laughs) I hope it's a huge success uh, and I hope that I can be a small part of that uh, rather than completely messing it up for you. Your name will go down in history, I'm sure, in some way. I hope it's a huge success because I don't want to be an architect anymore. I'd rather (laughs) rather do podcasts. More fun. Okay. So he's the disgruntled architect. I'm Red Lip Dastro and he's the disgruntled architect. (laughs) Change the the name in brackets there. Uh, No longer the drunk astronomer, now the disgruntled architect. (laughs) Okay, Paul, so more seriously now, what are gravitational waves and what causes them? Okay, so uh, gravitational waves are colloquially known as as ripples in the fabric of space-time. I'm not quite sure who coined that phrase, but we've got a lot of mileage out of it ever since. Uh, So basically what this means is that they're kind of ripples of gravity. Um, And so if I have really massive objects moving really, really fast, then what happens is as these objects move really fast, and in our case what we actually observe is two black holes and they often spiral around each other and then collide and merge into one one bigger black hole. Uh, And as they move around really quickly, they're letting off these really tiny ripples of gravity. Those ripples of gravity carry energy away. Uh, They move at the speed of light. And the result is that if a gravitational wave passes between uh, you or I, Claire, or or Mark and his building that he's just designed, what will actually happen is the distance between us will actually oscillate. That actual distance will change. Uh, And so the distance changes by a really tiny amount and we can quantify that and, and, you know, this gravitational waves were predicted to exist way back in 1916 uh, and they were first detected in 2015 so you know 99 years later it took that long uh, and that is just because they are so tiny and it took a you know uh, huge amounts of technology to to do this so LIGO is this laser interferometer gravitational wave observatory uh, two humongous experiments over in the United States they're sort of l-shaped uh, they're called interferometers and the arms of the l are four kilometers long uh, and so what you do is you send a laser beam down one arm and it bounces off a mirror at the end, comes back, uh, and another laser beam goes down the perpendicular arm, bounces off a mirror and comes back and recombines. And we use that to measure gravitational waves. But these are really the most sensitive instruments that have ever been built, uh, most sensitive physics experiments, uh, and it, it took the most sensitive physics experiments to be able to detect gravitational waves. And expensive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, they're kind of expensive. Uh, something like $500 million ballpark, uh, give or take. I don't know exactly when that money is calculated. LIGO detectors have sort of started to be built around the 1980s. Uh, so not just expensive, but, you know, these these are huge experiments that just take a long time to build. Um, they ran through very late 90s, early 2000s in what was just known as a test mode, essentially. They called them science runs, whereas when they started to run in... 2015, we started calling them observing runs because we we're actually starting to expect to see things. So yeah, from you know they're incredibly expensive to build, um, but 
uh, you know, they take a lot of lead in time in terms of the development as well. I was going to say that's like 15, 20 years of testing. Yeah, yeah, uh, which is incredible. You know, a lot of commitment from the scientists involved and then the next generation just comes in takes the credit. Um, but, uh, I mean, uh, you know, the uh, gravitational waves were first detected in 2015 and the Nobel Prize was awarded in 2017 to the three of the pioneers of that field. Um, and they are the ones who, you know, went in for the long haul uh, and they, they worked even earlier than the 80s, but they had that vision to build these huge experiments and actually drive that vision through to, to completion over a many decade long time scale. So pretty remarkable stuff. That leads into my question, Claire. Part of it is already answered, the how they normally detected. And the other part was why did it take so long to detect them? Yeah, so it truly is the most sensitive experiment. And I guess I can quantify uh, in different ways how sensitive it is. So what you're talking about is, as I said, there's, a, there's these four-kilometre arms and the four-kilometre arm wobbles when a gravitational wave passes through. And uh, when the gravitational wave passed through on the 14th of September 2015, the fateful day, they wobbled by less than one one-thousandth the size of a proton, which is just stupidly small. I don't think there's any other kind of adjective other than stupidly. I think that's an adjective. But it's just, just really small. So, you know, you can think about scaling that up Instead of a, an interferometer that's four kilometres long, you build it from the Earth to the Sun, for example. Then the change in distance between the Earth and the Sun is about that of a, a human hair, right? Not one of mine. I don't have any. One of Mark's green ones. <laughs> so, you know, just absolutely incredible. Oh, the blue one. They're wavy as well. They've actually been, if you see, they've got gravitational waves in them. That happened when a gravitational wave passed through. No doubt. So that would have been about 8 o'clock this evening. For anybody that can't see with their ears, <laughs> Mark has a mohawk, which is bright green on one side and bright blue on the other side. So, yeah, he's got this beautiful mohawk and it's been crimped. It was is, crimped you know, because it was 80s week. Which is different from Paul's head, of course, which we were talking about earlier. Um, we're not sure if he's waxing it or not. Um, certainly looks like it, yeah. It's very shiny. Surf wax. But anyway, so the only, like, it could be Mark's hair, it could be my hair. Paul, I think, it could be a beard hair. It could be a beard, hair. Be beard hair. I'm trying yeah. to reverse my hair growth so that it all just grows <laughs> on the bottom half of the face. Just attracting the attention elsewhere, are you? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Maybe no one will notice the reflection off the top of my head. So so tell me, Paul, what, do, what does this have to do with lasers? So we've talked to about interferometers moving. So from my understanding, it's it's to do with it's it's actually measured with lasers. So are you you able to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, okay, I have a an L shaped interferometer. Uh, this is what the the LIGO detectors are, and what I do is I, I pass a laser beam, uh, a single laser beam, into the interferometer, and there's a, a mirror at the start that's at the sort of vertex of the two arms. And that mirror splits up that laser beam in two and it sends half of the power for the laser beam down one of the arms, half of the power from the laser beam down the other arm. They hit the mirrors at the end, they bounce back, and then they recombine at, again, that same half-slit mirror that the, the lasers initially went through. So what this does is it allows us to, to measure the travel time for the light, so the amount of time it takes for the light to go down one arm compared to down the other arm. So we can't measure the, you know, the absolute value of it took, you know, so-and-so microseconds or nanoseconds or anything like that, but we can measure the difference in the amount of time that it took each half of that laser beam to go down the arm. And so the way gravitational waves work is that when a gravitational wave passes through, what's going to happen is one of the arms is actually going to grow and simultaneously the other arm will shrink. And this is known as a quadrupole deformation. Uh, that's sort of the technical jargon. But that's why we build them as L-shapes because one arm grows at the same time that the other arm shrinks. And then part of the wave, you know, half a cycle later, the one that has grown now shrinks, the one that has shrunk first off grows. And so the laser beam that travels down each side measures that travel time and therefore measures the length um, because we know that light travels at the speed of light. So they're very high-powered lasers. Um, the higher power, the better in some sense, although that causes other kinds of 
various instabilities and problems with the instruments and things like that, but there's a very fine tuning kind of thing that you have to do to get the right amount of power going down each going down each arm. So it's not just what you do with it that counts. See, Mark? It is. That's what I said. It's how you use it. No, higher power is better. Higher power is better. Yeah, great. So that's fantastic. So basically um, because it's directional, we see um, movement in sort of one plane, I suppose, and, and later in the other. Is that right? So we get sort of a response in one and then a response in the other. Yeah, well, it's a simultaneous response in both. Um, okay. in both the arms, um, but it is the waves are directional. And so what we actually do is we have more than one experiment. Uh, and so we there are two LIGO experiments. One is in um, Louisiana in, a, in Livingston down the south, um, strange place to visit. Um, people are lovely, interesting, uh, but, uh, you know, gorgeous part of the world. Um and the other experiment, the other LIGO experiment is um, about 1,000 kilometres away up in Washington. And then there's a, there's a third experiment called Virgo, which is in Italy, just near the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Other experiments being built at the moment, Kagren, uh, a huge uh, mine in Japan, uh, an instrument in India. We'd like to eventually build one in Australia. Um, but basically what happens is because the gravitational wave passes through from a certain direction, you can triangulate where it came from in the sky based on when it hit each of those detectors. And so that's the directional part where we can work out where they came from in the sky. Sort of like an earthquake with seismometers around the world, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And actually uh, people are talking about and there's some aspect of using gravitational wave type technology to do early warning earthquake detection, which is kind of a really cool cool. shoot-off. Yeah, no, the, this is really cool, though. The The idea is that uh, it's going way off topic, but I like it anyway. We do too. Um, the idea is that when an earthquake happens, the huge landmass shift. And what that is actually shifting is the gravitational field of the Earth. And you can pick up that instantaneously because the gravitational field changes at essentially the speed of light. So if you can pick up the fact that there's been this gravitational shift, it's not using gravitational wave detectors, but it's very, very similar technology. Um, to, to measure sort of the, the, a very similar idea. If you can measure the fact that the gravitational field of the Earth has changed, then you get that a long way before you get the whatever, they're, I think they're called S waves and P waves that travel through the Earth that are the things, the shocks that you actually feel. So, Paul, P is for primary. Thank you. S is for secondary. See? At least I, I got it right. I a geologist. Did you, you know did. that? I, I, I now that you've brought it up, I do remember. <laughs> Watch it. Who's <laughs> um, whim and I've mercy a now? Lot tonight already. <laughs> okay, so Paul, you suggested something about um, one in Australia. You have done some work with something called high frequency gravitational waves. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Is there what's the difference? Is there any difference? Are they better? Are they worse? Are they cheaper? Why are we doing that? And is that what is that what you're talking about bringing to Australia? Yeah, that's what we'd love to build in Australia. Um, And there's lots of reasons that we'd love to build in Australia. Uh, One is that there is a genuine science case to doing it. Um, And the other is is that it actually acts as a technology driver for the next generation of gravitational wave instruments that the entire community around the globe is is wanting to build. So, okay, what they are, um, just like sound, gravitational waves are waves that have different pitches. So uh, Mark is going to sing for us now a middle C. Oh, no, no. No, no okay. Me sing. No. Claire is going to sing for us a middle C. So anyway, you can have. None of us are going to sing. You don't want that. <laughs> well, actually it goes, mm, that's a middle C. <laughs> I think I can. Well I think done. I so when two black holes merge, uh, as they get closer to one another, uh, the pitch of the gravitational wave goes up in a very characteristic sound that we call a chirp. And it sort of goes, Ooh. I could whistle it, but that's about it. That's it. Gorgeous. Is that pretty close? At perfect. So that would be a black hole set that is maybe 20 times the mass of our sun. Quite massive, quite big. So the chirp that Mark managed to beautifully whistle before would have been for two black holes merging that was, say, 20 times the mass of our sun. The smaller the mass, 
of an object, so the lighter an object, actually the higher frequency it will get to in the gravitational wave signal. So where maybe a 20 solar mass merger would sound whoop, a one and a half solar mass merger would go a lot, lot higher than that. That was, yeah, that was good. So much, much higher frequency. So um, the LIGO and Virgo detectors are built so that they don't actually get that really high frequency part, which is actually when the two objects merge. And so this is when two objects merge that are like, they're called neutron stars rather than black holes. And so this is when you actually have mass involved in the system. And we saw a, a beautiful merger of one of these in, in 2017 on uh, the 17th of August, 2017, affectionately known as GW170817. Uh, and this was the, the collision of two neutron stars, very, very high frequency gravitational waves. So we actually saw the gravitational waves as they were, as the system was quite a way of, away from each other, but we never saw the actual merger because the frequency of gravitational waves was just too high. That pitch was too high for our detectors. So we missed out on a lot of information. We still caught a stupid amount of information for those, for that merger, because we actually managed to see it as well with electromagnetic telescopes. So we saw it in gamma rays, we saw it in x-rays, we saw it in optical, we saw it in radio waves. Um, we saw it across the electromagnetic spectrum. It was a gorgeous, gorgeous transient observation that um, people are still trying to look at as well uh, more than a 1,000 days later. So... Uh, this is a, a long version of the story. We want to build a gravitational wave detector that rather than gets that lower frequency signal from the more massive black holes, that really targets that merger part of a neutron star merger. So it would just be up in that high frequency regime. And it actually turns out that it's cheaper to build an instrument in that much higher frequency regime. So we, where we were talking about the initial LIGO instruments are sort of on the order of a few hundred million dollars. Uh, the next generation of instruments that people want to build, uh, they're talking about building something called Einstein Telescope and something called Cosmic Explorer. They're on the order of a few billion dollars. Uh, small which is small just, change. Just, just small change. change. Yeah, we'll just go and ask, you know, ScoMo. Surely he'll have that. General. Exactly. So we... We think we can build something like this, a high-frequency detector, for closer to $100 million. Small change compared to $3 billion. Still a lot of money, I'll give you that. Um, but we think the science payoff will be huge. And the additional thing is we think we can do that with current technology, whereas those sort of $3 billion scale instruments require a lot of technology development. They're sort of slated for the mid to late 2030s. Uh, we think we could get in between somewhere, you know, something around the 20, early 2030s, maybe even very, very late 2020s um, with this, you know, $100 million, very high power gravitational wave detector, very high frequency, and then you're, you're developing that technology on the way that's required for that full uh, next generation, the expensive instruments. So this is a proposal we've, we've got. We've, we're writing papers about it. We're doing the research to understand what would be required from a research and development perspective? Um, and from my perspective, something I'm much more interested in, but what science would we get out of it? What would we learn about the universe from having a detector like this? And I think there's a lot of rich and very interesting science there. So I just wanted to quickly jump in and ask a question that I, I was wondering about. So you're talking about frequency. So um, this high-frequency grav waves are sort of sitting on top, I suppose, of what we can currently measure with LIGO, which is lower frequencies. Um, and the reason that we couldn't detect gravitational waves for such a long time was more to do with sensitivity, not to do with frequency. Is that correct? Can you um, just explain that a little bit further? Yeah, that's right. So the reason we couldn't detect them is because of the amplitude. So again, taking the sound analogy, an amplitude is the loudness of a wave, okay? And so uh, whether I'm, you know, whispering or whether I'm yelling, I can do that at the same pitch. I can still, you know, I can whisper at a middle C or I can yell and scream at a middle C. And when I scream in middle C, the amplitude of the sound wave is much bigger. Uh, whereas I can still whisper in a, in a, you know, three octaves higher, um, doesn't make it easier to detect because it's still very low, uh, you know, low amplitude or in other words, it's not making a lot of noise, um, but it's a sort of very, very high frequency. So this is really the difference there that we, we, these things 
in general are very, very low amplitude. So they're like whispering, but even worse. Uh, it's whispering, but exacerbated by a lot. Um, whereas, you know, whether we can hear them high frequency or low frequency, the high frequency analogy is more like, uh, you know, the when you think about dog whistles and if you blow into a dog whistle, then, you know, the three of us can't hear that and we know nothing's going on. Well, actually, a dog is more sensitive to higher frequency sound waves. Uh, and our LIGO experiment or that we want to build, what we've actually called NEMO, it's a bit of a backronym. Uh, stands for Neutron Star Extreme Matter Observatory, NEMO. And Aren't all astrophysics acronyms, backronyms? I thought it stood for clownfish, personally. Aww. <laughs> now, this one is coming from the child within me. Explain quasi-periodic oscillations to me like I am five, and I am <laughs> mentally five. And the more this podcast goes on, the more people will realize that I'm just a child in an adult's body. Um, and why are these important in understanding dynamic, dynamic behavior of astron- astronomical objects? Are you sure you don't want another go at that, Mark? <laughs> no, you know what? No, I'm not. I'm going to roll with that one. We're going to roll with that because I'm five, remember? Good. So, All right. Well, that was pretty good for five-year-olds. For five-year-olds, that right. that's a pretty impressive question. I'll tell you what. That was really good. What impresses me about this is you've cl- very clearly um, done your homework and the, the last paper that we've submitted to a journal is exactly about this topic, so so well done. Uh, and that was that was by my uh, amazing and fantastic PhD student, Moritz Hübner, who is unfortunately or fortunately um, not going to be my amazing and fantastic PhD student for much longer. I believe he's submitting his PhD, I believe, tomorrow, um, which is super exciting. Uh, which reminds me I've got some reading to do. But anyway, quasi-periodic oscillations, basically we see them ubiquitously in any kind of transient object that we look at in the sky. When something goes bang in the night, um, whether that be a flare from the sun, uh, whether that be a flare from a neutron star, whether that be uh, gamma ray bursts which are caused by huge stellar explosions or caused by the mergers of neutron stars or things like that, we often see the signal that kind of looks like, you know, a whole lot of photons or a whole lot of light in different wavelengths comes to us. But within that light, we often see these little oscillations that, that occur. These are called quasi-periodic oscillations. They're a periodic oscillation because they're an oscillation, but they have a reasonably constant period. So when we were talking about pitch before, they have a reasonably constant pitch in that sense. But they're quasi-periodic because they might decay away very quickly or the pitch might change slightly and it might evolve and things like that. So because we see them so ubiquitously, they're they're very well studied and they're very well studied in lots of different areas. And one of my favourite areas, um, just as an example, is, is magnetars. Magnetars are the most highly magnetic objects in the universe uh stupidly high i'm using the word the adjective stupidly i still don't know if it's an adjective but i'm using that a lot tonight if you say it enough it becomes real (laughs) okay so these these uh magnetars neutron stars they're they have the mass of the sun but it's so compressed that it's into something like the size of a city so you know they're 10 kilometers across but they're the mass of the sun and That's a neutron star in general, but magnetars are these really, really highly magnetized things, highest magnetic fields in the universe. And we see them flare. So we see them, we see that every now and then just huge amounts of X-rays get released from them and just really quickly. And then it sort of goes away and it goes away maybe on 100 seconds or 200 seconds and then it will go again. And then, you know, really highly dynamic, highly interesting objects. Sometimes within those huge flares, we see these little oscillations and these little quasi-periodic oscillations, there's as many theories as there are observations of them. So that is to say that, you know, as astrophysicists, we do not understand what causes them, but absolutely we know that it's interesting. Whatever it has to be, it it is interesting. And I can give some ideas on, on what it could be, you know, that we think it could be like the crust of the neutron star, just like the crust of the Earth the crust of the Earth, neutron star is undergoing a star quake, again, just like the Earth undergoes a, a, an earthquake. 
And when that happens, the little ripples of, of the crust of the star could be oscillating and sending out these ripples high up into the atmosphere of the neutron star, which are then seen as these both flares and the quasi-periodic oscillations. So that's just one example. We see these in solar flares. We don't understand how the sun works. Um, my great one scary. of it's well, yeah, it's super scary. It's yeah, we don't. I mean, recently we figured out that the sun is hot, um, and why that is at least more than why. Recently, I think. We, well, look, being five, I thought everyone just. I thought you just turned it on with a light switch. Yeah, yeah, oh, it's yeah. daytime. It's early in the morning. Yeah, yep. that's what happens. It rises, doesn't it? You just turn it on, and there it is. Can I? Can I just say I actually did read the paper. Not a lot of it made. Yeah. Look, the maths made no sense to me. None at all. Yep. But like, well done to you. Can I just tell you, you have picked up the single worst paper to read in the sense that that's just such a technical piece of work. It's it's a really impressive piece of work from Moritz. My graduate student, but it's really technical. It is very technical. <laughs> very All technical. All that makes it technical, and that one like, tops the chart. Paul Lasky studies maths for 20, 30 years. Mark comes along, I don't understand this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, look, the funny thing is I kind of get it. The stuff I could understand I got, but the maths I just look and get, yeah, no. Yeah. But there's an analogy in that for the rest of everything. It's, it's, it's great that everyone has a real interest in these things and when we can get something out of something that we read, you know, we, we might get 10, 20, 30, 40%, but when we're not an expert, it can be really hard to dig into the really sort of the above 60% of details and, and properly understand them because, you know, you spend your whole life learning, getting yourself to this point and then taking another step and another step. So for, for us to just think we're going to be able to even be anywhere near that or understand it is, you know, I think it's a bit silly, really. I mean, philosophically. Um, but then that's one of the wonderful things about podcasts like this, right? But I get an opportunity to step back and hopefully explain those very technical things um, in a way that can make sense, hopefully, to the five-year-old. <laughs> it did. Trust me. No, no, it did. Look, I, I plan to be a qualified astrophysicist by the end of this season. Excellent. Is the season live, Mark? Probably, yeah. What's going to be your battery average? Uh, I haven't worked that out yet. I haven't worked that out. Probably won't be very high, but look, you know, I've stumbled my way through life so far. I'm sure I could stumble my way through this as well. <laughs> well, we're stumbling our way through this podcast. So. We are. <laughs> we are. I'm so confused by that last conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, I'm sure you have another question coming up, don't you? <laughs> I, I do. I do. So you, 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 like, you touched on it, um, but I, I have to know what the heck are magnetohydrodynamics, and what does it ha- and does it have anything to do with X Men? <laughs> I apologise for the five year old. I love, it's like children; you love them, but you know sometimes. You what just... do they say? Don't work, don't work with children, animals, or old. No, people. don't leave them in the car. I think that's what they oh, say. Oh, don't leave them in the car to go gambling. That's right. Yes. Magnetohydrodynamics is uh, just one of those really long words that describes a whole bunch of things. Um, But really, so hydrodynamics is the study of fluids. Uh, So hydro being fluid um, and dynamics being dynamics. Uh, So, you know, if I want to understand what happens when uh, my six-year-old jumps into a pool, a swimming pool, then I would study hydrodynamics. Magnetohydrodynamics is the study of uh, fluids that have magnetic fields, really strong magnetic fields, where the magnetic field is actually relevant for the dynamics. So this happens in the sun. And just as an example, when you look at a sunspot, uh, you shouldn't look at the sun, but when you look at a sunspot with appropriate filters on, um, you can see sunspots that they're regions of sort of strong magnetic field where lots is happening and there's lots of dynamics around them as well. And this is a region where to understand exactly how that works, you need to understand magnetohydrodynamics. So you need to understand how the fluid moves, how the magnetic field moves and how they affect one another um, in that way. So for me, I I don't study the sun. I think that's too hard. We have far too much data um, and still don't understand it. So smarter people than I study it. I study things that are further away and much smaller. So it's a, you know, you, you just can't be wrong. There's not enough data to prove you wrong. 
So, uh, you know, <laughs> again, these, these magnetars are these highly magnetized neutron stars. And to really understand how they work and how they operate, we need to understand magnetohydrodynamics. And so, you know, if I want to understand how a, a magnetar flare happens, then I can try and simulate that in a computer. But to simulate that in a computer, I'm solving these equations of magnetohydrodynamics. Um, and, of course, I need to do that with gravity, um, with gravity treated properly. And, it is, you know, it's a very difficult problem that requires very large supercomputers uh, and we still struggle with it. It's still, it's still very difficult. Um, but that's broadly what magnetohydrodynamics is, at least to an astronomer or an astrophysicist. Have you tried solving it with an Apple One? I've um, I, I spent too long in a past life when I was in Germany trying to solve it, uh, trying to solve these equations. Uh, so I was a postdoc in Germany in two thousand and nine till two thousand and eleven, maybe maybe that's wrong, something around there. And uh, I did a lot of magnetohydrodynamics, um, also with Einstein's general relativity to try and understand neutron stars, and um, it's hard. It's really hard. Did you know Sidereal Trading have a strong emphasis on quality products and service-oriented sales and technical stuff? But wait, there's more. Sidereal Trading's key strength is their ability to work closely with customers to achieve the results they desire. So whether your interests lie in nightscape photography, panoramas, wide-field Milky Way or deep-sky nebula and galaxies, Sidereal Trading can supply the astrophotography equipment you need and a free set of steak knives. Visit www.siderialtrading.com.au. Steak notes not included. Okay, bringing it back to Australia. Yeah. Parts is a radio telescope in New South Wales featured in the iconic Australian film The Dish. The film detailed how Parks was used to receive live TV images of the Apollo 11 landing. But what do you use it for? I'm not, they don't let me use it. Uh, I've done it. I've used it three times, and uh, I, I don't know. I probably pointed at the sun it? one of the times. I, I luckily didn't, but I'm, anyway, I'm a theorist. But I do absolutely use the data from Parks, and Parks is a stalwart of an instrument that is still producing absolutely amazing, phenomenal data of many, many different things. Uh, the things that I'm particularly interested in are gravitational waves. Uh, nope, uh, neutron stars. But we can use those neutron stars to detect gravitational waves. He doesn't even know what he's interested in. I know. Parks is used to point at a lot of different neutron stars. And we've been talking about these highly magnetized neutron stars. Um, they actually spin quite slowly. So they rotate only once every 10 seconds or so, give or take. Parks stares at a lot of what are called millisecond pulsars. And a millisecond pulsar is a neutron star. Pulsar is a neutron star that pulsates. And it actually spins approximately anywhere up to 700 times every second. So this is a star that is the mass of our sun. It is the size of a city like Melbourne. So it's 10 or 15 kilometres across. And it spins... 700 times a second, faster than a kitchen blender is the is the line that we often use. So these are absolutely amazing objects and Park stares at them. As these objects spin, they emit this um, beam of radio waves and the beam of radio waves comes out of the pole of the star and then it acts like a lighthouse. As that beam of radiation passes through the Earth's line of sight, we detect it as a little flash. And so for some of these, we detect them up to 700 times per second. Wow. So these are phenomenal objects. Um, I'm very interested in Parks observing these just to understand neutron stars in and of themselves, uh, and we can understand a lot about how neutron stars work. There's a lot that we don't understand about how neutron stars work, despite knowing about them for 60 years, ever since uh, now Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell uh, first identified them. Uh, and didn't win a Nobel Prize for it, somewhat horrendously. Um, what do you mean, somewhat? Very incredibly egregious. It was egregious. Let's go with that stupidly. I think. Okay, her her male supervisor was awarded the Nobel Prize oh. in physics for her discovery. Um, it, it yes, more than somewhat. Sorry, I was that was an attempted tongue in cheek, but I should just come out and say it. 
It's absolutely egregious. So we try and understand these neutron stars. We try and understand how they work. They are the only place in the universe to study how matter works um, at what we call supranuclear density. So beyond the density of the nucleus of an atom, uh, just incredible densities, um, but you know, huge objects. And we don't understand how it works. We want to, but we don't. But what you can also do is you can use these neutron stars because they spin so fast, they spin incredibly steadily. And so, you know, if, it, if you think it's going to pulsate 704 times per second, it will pulsate 704 times per second. And not only that, but we know that to something like 15 decimal places with the accuracy with which we can measure it. So what you can actually do then is you can continue to stare at these millisecond pulsars for a very, very long period of time. And we've been doing this, when I say we, not I, uh, better people than I have been doing this for 20, 20 odd years. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to use these neutron stars as a huge gravitational wave interferometer. Uh, and so just like LIGO uh, has a four-kilometre arm, instead of having a four-kilometre arm, we use the full arm length between us and the neutron star, so however many light years that is. Uh, and there's a, you know incredible, they're called pulsar timing arrays. Uh, we The Australian one is the Parkes Pulsar Timing Array. It's trying to detect gravitational waves, which are not high-frequency gravitational waves like we were talking about earlier. They're not the mid-frequency, but they're incredibly low-frequency gravitational waves. These are from things like they would be created from things like the mergers of two supermassive black holes, so black holes that have masses a billion times that of our sun. So we try and detect gravitational waves with these uh, pulsar timing arrays. There's pulsar timing arrays around the globe, so there's one in North America called Nanograv, there's one in Europe called the European Pulsar Timing Array. There's our Parks Pulsar Timing Array. The Indian group has just started up a, a Pulsar Timing Array as well, and China is also getting involved with their huge 500-metre telescope, uh, FAST. Um, and, yeah, we, and we all collaborate together as well, and we try and detect these gravitational waves. Do you have a favourite neutron star? And if so, <laughs> Why? My former favourite neutron star uh, was Cassiopeia A. Cassiopeia has a beautiful supernova remnant around it and you can, you can learn lots about it. It's just some gorgeous pictures. If anyone's not driving at the moment, just Google Cassiopeia. Um, just beautiful supernova remnant. Uh, and, so that, and there were some really fascinating results that came out about the, that a bunch of years ago where people could actually look at how the neutron star in Cassiopeia was was cooling and it could tell us about the interior of the neutron star. Oh, it was, it was absolutely gorgeous. So that used to be my favourite. Uh, and then an amazing postdoc that, that worked with me, Greg Ashton, um, discovered some really, really cool things about uh, something called the Vela Pulsar. And so now oh, the Vela Pulsar one. is now my favourite. Yeah, because we had a really cool paper about it and it was super fun to work on and it was really interesting and we think there's still lots of really interesting results about it. So that's my new favourite one. Paul, you've worked in some of the biggest and most exciting astro fields and with some of the most famous and expensive equipment. What's that like? You've got to pinch yourself every now and then. It's pretty weird. I still remember I was loosely involved in the Nobel Prize winning discovery uh, of the, you know, the first detection of gravitational waves. And I can still remember actually the moment I found out about it. And it was literally half an hour after this event actually happened. So a gravitational wave came through our detectors. We didn't have a live stream of the data or anything like that, but someone in the collaboration whose job it was to monitor the, the live data feed saw this thing and knew almost immediately what it was and what it looked like. And it was just so characteristic. It was what we had been predicting signals would look like for 10 years prior to that. And so to actually see it was this half eureka moment, but also a half moment of just, mm, that's too good to be true. Uh, and I still remember I was sitting at my kitchen table. Uh, this was before COVID days when we had, you know, didn't have a home office or anything like that. Um, and it was nine o'clock at night and I was halfway through a whiskey already. So I was already celebrating before it even came in. It was absolutely mind-blowing. And the next three months after that is a kind of blur of excitement and, um, you know, you're clinging to this secret that you're not allowed to tell and, and all of these kinds of things. But it's just, yeah, it's it's 
pretty mind-boggling. Um, the day-to-day of it can actually be more mundane and frustrating and it you know comes with all of the hassles of working with large groups of people and all of those kinds of things. I mean, the, the overall reward, you do have to sit back and think, we're actually accomplishing something pretty cool here and we're, you know, contributing to the birth of a new field of science in terms of gravitational waves, and that's pretty exciting. Um, to be honest, though, most of my work, the part I enjoy about my work more is working with uh, young and upcoming budding scientists and, and you know, the, they're, they're all so much smarter than me and, and um, just so, you know, bushy and blue-eyed uh, and that that to me is more exciting on a day-to-day basis than working with the biggest experiments in the world or anything along those lines. I don't know if that's soppy or weird or I don't know what it is, but it is. It's not soppy at all either. Mentoring to me is probably one of the most important things that you, you can do, really. Yeah. Yeah, I second that. Well, from somebody whose name is on the paper of the detection of the first gravitational waves. That's pretty awesome. Of all the projects you're involved in, which one brings you the most excitement and joy to be a part of? <laughs> this podcast. Oh. Is, that what, is that what you wanted me to say, Claire? I told you he was hilarious, everybody. I told you he was hilarious. It's really interesting. I um, LIGO has excited me for a long time and I'm super excited. We're working on... Uh, a whole bunch of really cool projects. I have uh, you know, an amazing PhD student who's been working on um, making new discoveries as part of LIGO, uh, Isabel Romero-Shaw. She's just been doing some phenomenal work. She's, you know, we see all these black hole mergers and she is making huge leaps towards understanding how they actually formed in the first place using both the data and our theoretical understanding. And that's just so cool. That's, again, forging a path of what we expect this field to look like in the next 10 years and really sort of kicking that off. Outside of hunting shadowy signatures in the universe, what do you actually do for fun? I like to play a lot of sport. So I've been playing cricket for far too long and I'm still playing and um, sometimes feel far too old to be playing, but I still love it. Um, So, yeah, I'm a wicketkeeper opening bat. Enjoy doing that. These days I do just as much of the sport coaching as I do of the, so, you know, my son's uh, nine. So it means I'm the coach of the under 11s cricket team. I coach the under nine soccer team, all those kinds of things. Uh, I used to play footy, but now tried that a couple of years ago and that hurt. That hurt far too old to go back into that. So now I just, I just run instead. Do the trail run, that kind of thing. Do you know what I do for fun, Paul, at the moment? I go to, I go to Woolworths once a day as an escape to get out of the house. Like that's 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 my fun at the moment. I'm like, oh, I can go to the shops. I need food. Off I go. It is Blur's Day after all, which is uh, the end of a long week. Friday's usually my day at the pub day, but I can't can't do that at the moment. So I'll have to drink my fancy craft beer at home. Uh, and your favourite type of drink at the moment is a Negroni. Yeah, I've got into them recently. I blame I blame my wife. Uh, she's a big gin fan. Uh, and so we're sort of getting into our gins. Um, yeah, but I'm sort of into the Negronis, into the whiskies. I think it's lockdown. I'm just into what everything. What sort of whiskey? Anything peaky. I'm, I'm not a discerning character. Uh, That's why we got you on. Yeah, I thought so. <laughs> <laughs> we're not discerning characters either. Also, whiskies, we're, we're good. That's why we're, we're good. Like just, whiskey, yeah. good. Yeah. yeah, whatever it is. So there you go. If you like whiskey, there are some there are some really nice whiskey aged beers as well. So they've been aged in barrel whiskey barrels. Mm. Whiskey barrels. Oh yeah. Yep. Oh okay. yeah, and there are some also some stout cast whiskeys which are really nice. They're very like full bodied. There are. Mm. Do like a good. Highly stout recommend the cast. Uh, the the Hawkers the Hawkers Imperial aged in whiskey barrels. Ah. I was actually thinking of whiskey that's been aged in stout car in stout barrels. It's, stout, it's got the stout flavour and it has it goes through the whiskey. It's really nice. Oh, that sounds nice. I must, yeah. I yeah. must find some of that. Well, there are, yeah. There's like there's a lot at your local liquor store. Um, <laughs> yeah. So 
we're coming to the end of the podcast and we know that you've been pretty prepared for the questions, um, which is good because, you know, you're a researcher and you should know the answers to the things that we've been asking you. Not anymore. So um, but I was wondering, Paul, whose name starts with P, how much you know about penguins because this is a spot quiz. Are you ready? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm Googling. No, no Googling. Hands where I can see them. Up. In the air. Wave them around like you just don't care. Yeah, jazz hands. We said that this podcast would be improved with jazz hands, and now I want to see that. Okay, question number one. Are you ready? So penguins is the theme. Number one. King. Who voiced the young emperor penguin character Mumble in Happy Feet, a computer animated film released by Disney in 2006? Will Smith. Will Smith. Do you even have children? <laughs> it was Elijah Wood, and this movie had an enormous cast. Actually, we had lots of Australians. Eli- yeah. Well, Elijah Wood's not one of them. Robin Williams is not one of them. But we had Hugh Jackman, Nicole Kidman, yep. Hugo Weaving, Anthony LaPaglia, Magda Shabansky, and Steve Irwin. How could you not That's know right. that? That's right, and Will Smith. <laughs> not, a, not mumble. Don't make these things up. Okay. You might get it past the peer review, but you won't get it past us. question number two penguins have teeth true or false i can't answer will smith to that that was going to be my plan for this um no true yep true i'm really sorry but they don't have teeth they have these things called papillae, right? And they have teeth like spikes, right? They're kind of made of keratin, which is the same stuff as like a hair and a fingernails, and they're on the beak, but they're not actually teeth. Uh, the only thing that could be sort of considered a tooth is maybe the egg tooth, which is on baby penguins, which they use to crack out of eggs, but that gets absorbed into the absorbed So, yeah. Tissue, so, no. Can I – what defines a tooth? Let me put this back on you. I would have defined a tooth, a tooth – as like a, a spiky thing. A tooth is a hard calcified definition. Here we go. Which is not keratin because my hair is not teeth, right? So a tooth has to be made of calcium. My hair is not tooth. My hair is not I'm tooth. I'm done. <laughs> That's rubbish. My I hair is not a tooth, the, right? I object a tooth to the question. A tooth is a hard calcified structure found in the jaws. With enamel in mammals. There you go. Enamel in mammals. Remember that, it rhymes. Anyway, so no, you are incorrect. You, you've got Will Smith wrong. You've got, you've got penguins having teeth is true. I mean, do you even know anything? No hate mail from the dentist, please. Which famous band released an album called Penguin in 1973? Oh, Jesus. The Doors? No. I should have said that. Uh, can, I, can I respond again? Can you cut that out? The Doors. <laughs> no. <laughs> Confidence ain't going to help you. <laughs> no. Fleetwood Mac. No, that's not right. It's The Doors. But The Penguin is the band mascot favoured by the bass guitarist. John McVeigh. Wasn't going to um, get that either. Oh, well, you might get this one. This is a numeric guess. Are you ready? Found in the Antarctic, Adelie penguins are medium-sized penguins weighing three to six kilograms and standing 70 centimetres tall. Walking on ice... They average 2.5 kilometres an hour. Roughly how much faster is an Adelie penguin swimming at top pace? So how much faster is an Adelie penguin in the water if it's being chased than 2.5 kilometres an hour? Uh, They can travel up to 60 kilometres per hour in the water. So my answer is 60 divided by 2.5. That would make it like. 24 times faster. That's right. It's actually six times. Close. Well, yeah, very close, 24 and 6. Adelie penguins normally swim between 4 and 8 kilometres an hour but can reach speeds of up to 15 kilometres an hour when threatened. Uh, Okay, last question and then we'll let you go. Number five. Private, Kowalski, Skipper and Rico are the names of the scheming penguins from which 2005 film? I think he thinks he knows this one. That's the one in the aeroplane with the uh, Madagascar. Yes, he's on the board, everybody. Our first guest is on the board. One from five, and the aeroplane's in the second one. What would have happened? Did you have a contingency plan if I got all of them wrong? No, No. you would just go to zero on our leaderboard. 
Oh, that would have been it. Oh, there's a leaderboard. You'd still be winning. You are winning. You are currently winning. Yeah. So this is like Top Gear. You know, when they race around the track and you get the fastest and you go to the top of the leaderboard. There's no one below you at the moment. I'm winning. Yep. Also, Elijah Wood is the answer. That was confident. Confident. (laughs) You got one, though. You'll be on the leaderboard for a while. I really want to win this. You're not going to. It's going to be really embarrassing when I'm the like leader of the quiz. We'll invite you back just to redeem yourself. Yeah. Can you, when yeah. you invite me back, can it be to reclaim my prize that I will have lost after the first week? <laughs> We're not going like, to ask the same questions oh, again. You're here to talk about your research. I mean, to read the quiz. <laughs> Thanks so much, Paul, for your time and for being our first guest. Thank you both. This is super fun. Sidereal Trading can supply the astrophotography equipment you need. Visit www.siderialtrading.com.au Hey, subscribe, sponsor or support us. Head along to our website at www.spaghettification.com.au That's spaghettification.com.au and follow the links to subscribe. Photo submission for the Astrophotography Photo of the Month is through our website. Check us out on YouTube and Instagram and keep an eye out for submitted photos which need your vote on our Instagram page. We now have a Patreon, which gives you special access to extra behind-the-scenes content, bloopers and potentially a guest spot on the podcast. If you'd like your name or business featured in a podcast, hit us up at spaghettificationpodcast at gmail.com.